Welcome to NextQuest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today I welcome to the show Barbara Natalini Priesnitz, Licensed Professional Counselor, who will be discussing her practice in one of her areas of specialty, past life regression. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thanks, Noah. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. So can you tell us what exactly is past life regression? Yeah, that's a great question to start with. The concept of past life regression is that you can regress your subconscious memory to past lives. And of course, that implies that we have past lives, which implies that we have a soul or a spirit or some part of us that can incarnate or be embodied over and over again for some reason, and that that soul or spirit or whatever you want to call that part of us actually has access to its full um, history of memories. So reincarnation. So reincarnation, yeah. Sounds It sounds weird at first, but now after all these years, Now it sounds so normal and obvious to me, but I used to be really sensitive about saying it out loud. It was so weird. So how can past life regression help people in a therapeutic sense or what sorts of things can past life regression help with as a whole? Okay. So without making any claims or medical claims, let me just say, that past life regression was immensely helpful to me about 20 years ago, way before I was in this field. I was working in a whole other industry. And my brother asked me to go see this person that he had seen because he thought it was really cool. He was sort of the hippie wild guy in the family. And I went skeptical. I was sort of in my intellectual, maybe atheist phase but very open-minded and curious. And I went 
And this woman in her 70s, Coletta Long, practiced. She had a PhD here in Austin in psychology. And I went to see her and I had a life-changing experience. And it took me, honestly, five or six years to process it because I, it was so real and so intense that it, it forced me to confront what I believed and what I thought. And of course, there's no proof. So that's really hard to get your mind around. Um, so all that to say, I had my own experience of how it could help. And maybe later I can talk more about how it helped me personally. But also my teacher, Dr. Brian Weiss, who wrote Many Lives, Many Masters and many other books, has written extensively about how this can help people, starting with relieving the fear of death, the fear of our own death, the fear of the death of our loved ones. That is a profound thing to happen if it can happen for you. So there's one. Another thing is for people who remember traumatic events from past lives, just today I had a regression client who remembered being impaled in the head on the left side of her head where she has had migraines since she said she was 22. And she saw the scene in which she was impaled and she was also in her early 20s as a male, she didn't say 22, but she said young, young and naive and wearing sort of a chain mail, even a little drapey chain mail over his head, feeling like war would never come to his town. And he had this chain mail and it would protect him. And sure enough, war came to his town and he was easily killed, wounded through the chain mail. And Dr. Wise talks about spontaneous relief of phobias and sometimes physical symptoms related to past life traumas. It's well documented. The University of Virginia has a whole department around this. And you can find that online. You can find it on my website, but go to UVA and look up their paranormal psych and reincarnation uh, department, they have that. <laughs> so I'm sorry, what was the question again? The question was um, how it can be helpful for people. So it can be helpful by relieving the fear of death, by potentially relieving phobias or even physical symptoms. And finally, and I think most profoundly, it can be helpful by bringing home this idea that we are here to learn and grow and all of our struggles and suffering and pain are on purpose for our learning and growth. Like if we really believe that, if we really consider that as a possible explanation for why this is so fucking hard, and it is hard for most everybody at some points and some people at all points. Um, if it's something that maybe we signed up for, like a class we registered for, like something we know we needed that our advisors said, you have to take this class next. Um, it can change the way we approach ourselves 
and our own struggles and stumbles and even failings, it could change for therapists the way we view our clients and their struggles as noble and honorable and something to be slogged through and endured and overcome. And then you get the reward of, I passed it. I learned it. I know what that means, you know? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it kind of goes hand in hand with like logotherapy and meaning making in some ways. Yes, actually. Yes. It's just more aligned with an idea around um, that each lifetime is for learning, but it is actually very similar to logotherapy and meaning making. Cool. What if you don't believe in reincarnation or don't believe that we have souls? Would somebody still benefit from past life regression? Okay, so I believe that yes, you can. And that's not just like, because I think you should come do it with me. Um, I even if you think that this is a projection of your subconscious mind, whatever you remember is a projection of your subconscious mind, then that's valuable. That's therapeutically meaningful. In fact, I think it's pretty intense and profound. If your subconscious is projecting a whole storyline complete with minute details and that it's all about what happened and what happened to you and how you responded and how you made sense of it and what would you do differently? That's what regression is all about. And if it's not real, if, if I'm wrong and this is it and we're just sort of an accident of chemistry and physics, then that's okay because if this is a projection of my subconscious, it has been profoundly life-changing and relieving for me and for many, many others. Makes sense to me. Yeah, thank you. How did you become interested in past life regression? Well, honestly, my little brother. <laughs> That's what everybody hates to say. My little brother turned me <laughs> on to this. Uh, my little brother. The I have two younger brothers. One is ten years younger, and he's the one. And um, he read many lives, many masters, and he brought me the book and said, "It's not a long book." you need to read this. And I read it. It was very interesting. It's really the story of a very traditional, well-trained psychiatrist. I mean, Yale Medical School, New York, Jewish psychiatrist, like textbook. And eventually he became, I think he was the chief of psychiatry at Cedar sinai Miami. I mean, like big time, okay? And uh, very secular, not spiritual, not religious. And he tells the story in this first book, Many Lives, Many Masters, which is, like I said, is a short book about a client he had who was either a nurse at the hospital or referred. She worked in the hospital and she had some very specific and severe phobias. And he was convinced that her phobias were related to early childhood trauma. And he did age regression using hypnosis as part of his practice. And he regressed her to three or four. And she did, in fact, remember some traumas somewhat related to her phobias. And he was convinced that her phobias would be completely relieved when she came out of this. But they weren't. So he thought, well, if something happened at three or four of this caliber, maybe something happened even when she was younger. 
So the next time he progressed her, he said, go back to the time that's the source of these symptoms. And she said something like, I'm standing on the bank of a river holding my baby and it's flooding and my village is getting flooded. And he knew she didn't have any children. So this starts a whole process. You can read the book, but basically this client brings up this uh, purported past life experience, even though she never expressed any interest or belief in anything like that. And the book is really a retelling of his experience of coming to terms. And then there's a lot of stuff that happens. You have to read the book that has to do with um, our guides, you know, master spirits, master souls, actually speaking through her to him and his own skepticism and his own resistance and what happened. So it's a great book. But that question of how did I become interested? I read the book. My brother said, I went to see this woman. She's very legit. Go see her. I got on her schedule. This is like 20 years ago and it was expensive and it took a long time to get on her schedule. And, but I did it. And um, like I said, it was profoundly life-changing. Did you have any mixed feelings about pursuing past life regression, given that it's outside our cultural norms? Cultural norms. Yes. Um, I did. I was raised Catholic. I abandoned Catholicism around age 17 um, and didn't pick up anything in its place. I mean, I just abandoned the whole, as I call it, the one syllable problem, God. I abandoned the whole concept around 17. And, um, you know, when I had that experience, I told you I struggled for five or six years. Part of that struggle was, if I believe this, does that mean that other people are going to know I believe this? Am I going to be embarrassed that I think and I say I believe this? It was really, I mean, I was young, but I was, I was embarrassed. I thought it was intellectually uncool. I thought it was impossible. I thought a lot of things. Um, so as time went on, the truth is I had a very successful career in technology and I made a lot more money than I do as a therapist, <laughs> but I was always drawn to this idea of doing past life regression as a therapist. That was re really what made me go back to school to be a therapist. But I, did I tell anybody that? No, it was my personal secret, secret, little secret. And I went through graduate school while working full time. And I, you know, did the exam and I did my 3000 hours and, and I did, I did go pursue clinical hypnosis training after I finished my master's at the Erickson Institute in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I had this idea that I wanted to be as legitimate as possible. So I wanted a master's degree. I wanted the post-grad training in clinical hypnosis. I wanted, I didn't, I was already too old uh, at 40 something. I was, I thought I was too old to pursue a PhD and the years and the time and the money. I was already a single parent. So I, I wanted to be as legitimate as I could be. And 
of course, during those first years of doing my internship and then beginning a private practice, I never mentioned regression to anyone because I was afraid it would delegitimize me. And then I practiced for the first couple of years in private practice, which of course was a slow process of building. And then I decided I've got to do this. This is why I did this. This is what I want to do. And I started a separate um, website, a separate business for regression, because of course, regression is not a recognized therapeutic modality, right? Um, so I couldn't keep it inside my regular therapy practice. And yes, I was really embarrassed. It took me a long time to be willing to talk about it. But let me just say, once I started mentioning it to other therapists, to other people, without, I mean, I would say 99 out of 100 people said, oh, really, I'm really, that's really interesting. One person said in the first couple of years, oh my God, that's crazy. And even when she said it, I kind of looked at her like, hmm, that didn't bother me as much as I thought it would. And now it doesn't, now I bring it up on purpose because I know that it's going to be a provocative, in a good way, opening conversation, opening ideas about what we believe and why we believe what we believe and etc. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. So how does one get trained in past life regression? What are your credentials? Well, technically, you don't have to have, um, you don't have to be a therapist of any kind. So there are a lot of lay practitioners, and I'm not going to knock them. I think there's a lot of really gifted, devoted people who do that. But that's not what I wanted to do. Um, so I approached it from, I want to at least be a licensed counselor. And then I want to get legitimate clinical hypnosis training. And then two years later, I went to the Omega Institute in New York for a week long therapist regression therapist training with Dr. Weiss in 2015. And honestly, I tried to go in 2014 and there was a waiting list. It took me a couple of times to, he, at that time, at least he offered it three times a year. I don't know what it is now. He's in his seventies. So I went there for the therapist training. The therapist training did not exclude people on the basis of their credentials. So anybody could come, but there were only a hundred or so people, which is really small if you think about it in a mm-hmm. week long group training. And there were a number of dentists and nurses, and there were some psychiatrists, and there were some lactation consultants, and there were, there were a lot of different types of practitioners, a number of therapists, and then, of course, some lay people, um, some who were practicing as a business, and some who were just interested. And that was a really great experience, including I got... Um, randomly selected to be regressed by Dr. Weiss on a stage in front of this group. And that was also a pretty um, intense experience. Sounds very legit to me, Barbara. Thank you. Now I, you know, I'm not ashamed about it anymore. I'm surprised that I ever was, but I understand how I was. So being a therapist is not your first career. Something in technology was. What was this something in technology that you did? 
Oh, I started out as a business analyst, which for people who know anything about the sort of technology industry, it's, um, you know, entry level, sometimes entry level, I got to be pretty advanced in it. But it's really where you talk to people about what they need their software to do, and then you translate it for the developers. And from there, I grew and um, evolved in that field into the business side of software architecture and program management. And I loved it. But it wasn't, I always felt a calling to come back to this. And eventually I did. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So tell um, us a little bit. Oh, go ahead. I wanted to add. I was divorced. I really got into my own therapy as a client. Seriously, when I was about 35, 36. I mean, I had a marriage falling apart. I was going to therapy twice a week for the first few months and weekly for a couple of years. That's a long time to do weekly therapy for me. And my therapist was in her 70s. And when I left, the next person was waiting to go in. And I knew divorcing in my mid, late 30s, I was going to have to cash in my 401k just to buy a house. I didn't have an ex-husband who was going to be providing anything. So I was looking at her thinking, this is what I want to be doing. And you can work into your 70s. (laughs) And I needed that. I knew I was going to have to keep working until my 70s. And in IT, you know, once you hit 45 to 55, developers start saying, my grandmother has that sweater and you're aged out, (laughs) or you have to go into management or sales, which I didn't really want to do. Okay. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you've already told us a lot about yourself, but tell us, you know, like what TV do you watch? What do you enjoy doing? You know, that, that whole thing. Um, I love science fiction. So I read a lot of science fiction and I watch I watch the science fiction that I like. I'm, I feel pretty particular about it. I also read historical fiction. I read a lot. I went through a phase for many years where I only read nonfiction sort of as a badge of honor. And I did. I learned a lot. And then my husband, I remarried and my husband got sick. And while he was in the hospital several times, I couldn't focus on the nonfiction. And so I bowed my head and downloaded some fiction. And that started many years grateful relationship with fiction and escape. And really reading to me is more rewarding than watching. I can read, I usually read by listening to audiobooks and I can do it while I'm doing the dishes or while I'm gardening or while I'm walking around for exercise or it's, um, it's a lifesaver. What else about me? I'm the oldest child of five. We're 10 years apart, oldest to youngest. I grew up partly in Dallas and partly in Italy in Milan. Um, I have one daughter and three stepchildren that are like my children. And I'm now widowed. And all of those things have affected me 
profoundly, of course, and I'm grateful for them all. Thanks for that, Barbara. Yeah. So earlier you mentioned that you have a website, a regression website separate from your therapy practice. Mm -hmm. Would you say that regression is a part of your therapy practice or would you say they function completely independently? Legally and technically, they function independently. And that is because I don't want any of my therapy clients who file for insurance reimbursement to run up against pushback from their insurance company saying this is a person who practices outside of the acceptable um, arena. However, that said, some of my favorite clients started as regression clients. And I don't mean to say that people have to start as regression clients to, to fall into that category. It's just that it's so nice to start out with a baseline of knowing someone and having someone be really so vulnerable and so um, willing to dig deeply and to be outside of the realm of the sure known because that sets a great tone for, for therapy, right? When you don't know and when you're willing to just go with what comes up and see, I mean, it really has been a great way to start therapy, but I have, most of my regression clients are not therapy clients and most of my therapy clients are not regression clients. Okay. So you don't necessarily have to be one to be the other. Oh, no. Not at all. In fact, I, I'm careful not to mention regression to my regular therapy clients unless it seems relevant and part of the conversation. I don't want people to feel uh, influenced or off-put by my personal. I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about my spirituality. I don't talk about any of that unless mm -hmm. I think it's relevant. What are your fees for, you know, let's say, you know, you do regular therapy as well. So what are your fees for past life regression and regular therapy? Um, and do you take insurance? And I'm sure there's not a CPT code for past life regression. There's not. There's really not yet. Um, <laughs> and let me just say that I've become a little bolder in the fact that certain types of religious therapy are recognized and accepted like um, Christian therapy. There's some other types of religious therapy that are recognized. And I don't think that frankly, that's any different than regression therapy. Um, however, to your question, I charge $150 an hour for therapy for one person. I charge $175 an hour for two or more people. And for regression, it's $350 for two hours. And there's a $75 consult required that is done preferably days or weeks before the regression. And that's 30 minutes. And that is very important. And I don't know if this is when you want me to talk about the consult, but. 
Yeah, let's tell us about the consult. The consult. So I used to do an optional consult. Some people really wanted to meet me first and talk about it. And some people just wanted to book the regression. And what I found was that the people who had done a consult had a much like drastically much higher I want to call it a success rate, but that's such a loaded term. They had the least amount of problems relaxing to the level that they needed to achieving the hypnotic state that they needed to get through the regression without issue. The people who did not have the consult tended to struggle more. So after a few years, I decided to require the consult. And I, like I said, I prefer to do it days or preferably weeks in advance. Part of that is in order to relax enough to go into a deep enough trance to access your own soul's memories, you have to be really, really out of 2020 or whenever it is. And to do that, you have to relax very, very deeply, more deeply than most people have ever relaxed. And to do that, you have to feel safe. I mean, that's the bottom line. And to feel safe with me in particular. So my voice, my presence, my energy, my approach. And I found that the people who did the consult connected with me, felt comfortable, felt safe. And that's what made the difference. And since I've started requiring it, I mean, it's been radically improved my practice because of course it's easier for me if the person easily goes into the process too otherwise I can get them there but it takes a lot more um, work which I don't mind doing but if I can eliminate it by helping them feel safer with me two weeks earlier great for both of us yeah okay So going back to reincarnation, how would you describe it? Okay. So I'm not a spiritual guru, but my understanding of reincarnation, to the best of my knowledge, is that there is one source, and from that source, we are unique souls that come and I believe personally that we are all basically little gods in training and that we have to come experience all of these things to to grow to mature to ripen to rise and that it's like college or you sign up for you have to take all the classes you have to learn all the stuff and you have to go in order You know, you take algebra and then you take trigonometry and then you take calculus and then you take something called vector calculus. It actually gets harder as you go. And most of the teachers all agree on that. Um, That as you grow spiritually, actually life is hard. It's not like a spiritually mature person has some easy charmed life, just the opposite. So I believe reincarnation is about going to school. And so we reincarnate to learn new things. 
Uh-huh. That's what I believe. Tell us about the in-between place. In-between lives. This is something that is implied by the concept of reincarnation, but not as well described and certainly without as much consensus on what it's like. You know, when we incarnate, we have these lives as humans, whether it's medieval times or prehistoric times or 200 years ago or now, the human experience is pretty consistent, frankly. And I've worked with people from all kinds of cultures and all sorts of class and education and language and ages and their experiences in regression are very consistent. But the experiences of what it's like when you're not embodied are less consistent. And I don't mean less consistent like conflicting or problematic, just Imagine that you're in a human brain and you're trying to explain something that is difficult to explain. You're going to explain it in terms and images or concepts that you can process. So a lot of people, I would say most people describe the in-between as being in space, uh, seeing stars, vast, vast, limitless space. Some people describe it very specifically as a place with crystalline structures or made out of light. Some people describe it as just being in light. Some people describe it as um, the absence of things that they can describe it, that they're in total peace, like resting. Some people describe it as being with all of their, all of the other souls. So I believe, I don't know if I believe, my experience in listening to all of my clients over the years talk about that in-between space, in-between lifetimes, I've heard enough to hear the consistencies and I've heard enough to hear um the ways in which people strive to describe something that's indescribable. But ultimately, the idea is that in between these lifetimes, we are processing what happened in that lifetime. We're reviewing it with our guides, with our teachers, our advisors. Um, my experience, the first time I did regression, both times of being in between, it felt like... Um, a dark, but not like dark, ominous, human dark, more like just without any light or dimension. This being, I was in this space that had nothing around it. And there was some energy, some spirit asking me questions. How do you think that one went? What did you learn? What were you there to learn? And both times, the first regression I ever did, I remembered two lifetimes. And after the first one, I said, I wasted so many years being bitter and lonely and angry. And then the second one, I had committed suicide. And at the end of that one, I said, I wasted another one. 
And I had this profound feeling of, gosh, I wasted it. I just, I just threw it away. And that has stayed with me. I mean, it's been almost 20 years and I'm determined not to waste it. I think even the suckiest parts of this thing are an amazing opportunity for growth. Some deep shit, Barbara. Yeah, some deep shit for real. <laughs> Seriously. It is. I know. I agree. It's amazing. So what is the origin of souls according to this thought? I don't, I don't have, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't actually know. I don't, I don't personally adhere to any dogma or school of thought. Dr. Weiss doesn't try to say how it all works or why. I've read a lot of amazing books and some of them get real specific in the explanations and some of them just completely do what I'm doing, which is to say, we don't know, but this is what we are. Um, I think that we are all parts of the same thing, whatever that is, that we are. So the best way I can describe it, which I said earlier, I think we're all like little gods in training. You know, when I was growing up, they all said, we are all children of God. They also said there were chosen children and unchosen children, which even at like eight or 10, I rejected mentally. But if we're all children of God, then we are the same thing. We are that. And I think this is how we grow. And frankly, one of the hardest things that anybody deals with in regression, and one of the hardest concepts to talk about is why people do bad shit, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to children? Why are there perpetrators? Why are there Donald Trumps? You know, why do these things happen? And my best understanding is that somebody's got to play the bad guy in the play, right? We're staging a play. The play is for the benefit of the audience. The audience is going to see themselves and learn something in watching this whole thing play out. The drama is exaggerated on purpose to make its point. And when you stage a play, somebody's got to play the bad guy. And by the way, there's a lot to be learned from what it's like to be the bad guy. The truth is, I think, in my opinion, most of us have perpetrated in some ways in our lives. And we've certainly all been victimized in certain ways in our lives. And we've been the silent observers. We've been moments where we've stepped up and intervened. We've played all these roles in each lifetime. But then some people seem to play out a role for a whole lifetime or across lifetimes. I don't know why that is. But I know that ultimately, I know. And when I say I know, I know, I call it capital K knowing. I know, which is more than believe, that we are all the same thing. We are all from the same place. We're all here to learn and grow. We're all going to the same place. And those perpetrators have been us. And those victims have been us. And... Mm. I can go off the deep end there. Sorry. You're good. 
What happens when a soul has achieved all that it was intended to do? I don't know. A lot of people come and say, I know this is going to be my last lifetime. And you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe they know. Maybe they're, they're, it is. Uh, I don't feel that way. I do feel like earth is kind of a K through 12. <laughs> so I don't, I don't personally feel like this is like a graduate school. <laughs> this is, um, this is a place with second graders. And you know what? Second graders don't bother me anymore because of course that's what, and it's not being demeaning or condescending. Like we're all in school. That second grader is going to grow up to be a leader. That second grader is going to quit spitting spitballs and bullying people and become a like full human experiencer at some point. You know, it's like the love that teachers have for, for students. This is something else I kind of struggle with is the, the, the idea that we're all not exactly in the same place, right? Because I do care about, frankly, not political correctness for the sake of political correctness, but for all the reasons that we try, that we struggle to stay mindful of those, those um, ideas and challenges. And so the idea that we're not all at the same place at some point is presumptuous and condescending, but at the same time, we look around. Like there are people who are really struggling with some really basic ideas about how to tell the truth, how to forgive, how to get up the next day and keep going. I mean, I don't, I'm not speaking very eloquently on this, but all of the shit that's going on is how it's always gone on. And yes, we're hurting our planet. I don't think for a second that our planet is going to let us keep hurting it for very much longer. But I do think that humans are humans and this is what we do. I got off track again. What did you ask me? <laughs> I asked, uh, what happens when the soul has achieved all that oh. it was intended to do? Well, I think, I mean, everything I've read and every teacher I've had says that you go on to the next school, right? To the higher, like you go to college, you go to grad school or whatever it is. Um, some people stay here to teach. Some people stay here to help. Maybe you can do both. I don't know. I don't, I don't pretend to know, but. It's messy here. This place, I mean, I could get, I could cry, right? This place is messy and chaotic and it has as much tragedy as it has joy on any day. And so I don't think coming here is a breeze, but I don't really have anything in mind that I can compare it to. <laughs> So what can one expect to experience during a past life regression session? Okay, that can, that's easy to answer. You've already had a consult with me. So we've already talked about what to do to prepare, how to prepare your body, your mind. The mind is a big thing because the mind can really interfere. The mind sometimes does not like things that don't make sense. 
but we've already done all that. And you get here, I usually do regressions in person, even now, although I can do them certainly online. And we spend five or 10 minutes talking and connecting. And then the person gets comfortable. Most people lie down, not everybody lies down. They arrange pillows or a blanket. I have a little microphone, they clip on their clothes. I have a eye masks and we get started. There's a 25 minute progressive relaxation hypnotic induction. That is more than twice as long as a standard clinical hypnosis induction in my practice. So the first 25 minutes are the induction, meaning inducing a hypnotic state that's deep enough to go into the regression. The regression itself, I have, there's two different times during the induction when I prompt people to take all the time they need to make their request or intention to their, through their heart, their soul, their guides for what they want, what they need out of this regression experience. And then once they go through the, I call it a gateway, it's really a conceptual device to move out of the concept of this life into memories of another life. Um, and people have more or less of a hard time making that initial transition. Most people feel like they're there. They feel like they're somewhere. Most people can see their feet. They can see the ground they're standing on. Some people can immediately go into describing what's happening, where they are, and some people really need, I would say, five or 10 minutes worth of help to become more grounded in where they are. I'm very careful not to ask leading questions. I ask over and over again, what do you notice? What are you aware of? What do you feel is happening? I ask them to you know, crouch down and touch the ground with their hands and tell me what they feel. Touch your feet. Are you wearing shoes or not? Um, so then I, most everybody gets there, even if it takes five or 10 extra minutes. And then we go through each lifetime. Most people get through two or three in the session. Some people only get through one, some people get through five or more. And none of that is determined by me or even by the client, um, if I say, when we're going through the lifetime, if I say, let's go to the next most significant event in that lifetime, and then you're there, and I say, how much time seems to have gone by? And you say, two weeks or two months or two years. You know, we're going to jump through the life like that. And depending on how long those periods of time are between significant events, it could take up the whole session to get through one. Or you could jump and say, now I was 20 and now I'm 80. That happened today. Lady said, oh, I'm an old woman and I'm hunched over and my body hurts. And I mean, this is not, you know, it was interesting, but I hear that a lot. So it depends um, how long. Everybody, I would say without fail, everybody gets to a death. And I think it's one of the most important takeaways is to remember dying. Remember what it 
feels like to die. And that is regardless of whether it's a peaceful death, an expected death, a violent death, an unexpected death, young, old, doesn't matter. What is it like to die for your soul to leave your body? Because when people remember what that's like to a one, everybody, no one has ever described a sort of deviant experience. And I don't mean deviant, I mean di a diverse experience. Everybody experiences the same thing or describes the same thing to me, which I'm not going to describe to you because I don't want to load anybody, but let's just say there's a hundred percent consistency and it's in inherently um, relieving. And so if people come away saying, wow, I remember dying and, and it felt like ultimately relieving, then their fears of dying, their fears of their loved ones dying are profoundly changed. And I can say that my husband died this year. He had been sick for a long time. And as we anticipated his death and it got closer and closer, I really wondered if my own spiritual knowing would be enough to support my grief, to help me. And I have to say, I, I was just curious and I've been surprised to find that I haven't doubted it for a moment. My experience is remembering dying, remembering dying multiple times and listening to countless other people's experiences of dying completely changed how I processed his death. I mean, I miss him, but I don't wonder if he still exists. I don't think twice about talking to him, reaching out, etc. That's what to expect during repression. You may encounter people that I all may say, do you recognize that soul from anyone in your current life? People recognize some people. Some people they'll say, nope, I've never met that person in this life. It's very emotional. You may, most people cry. Um, and I encourage people to lean into those emotions, open to those emotions. It tends to help actually the regression become more clear and more rich. Yeah. What is a hypnotic trance and how is that achieved? Hypnotic trance is a focused state of awareness. It's measurable. It's a change in your brainwave frequency. So it's not woo-woo at all. A hypnotic trance uh, is really a shift out of beta into alpha or even theta. Certainly for regression, we're in theta. Uh, there are four primary brainwave patterns, you, me, and all the mammals, beta, alpha, theta, delta. Delta is deep sleep. Beta is talking, working, thinking, processing like adults. Alpha is light relaxation. So whenever you're working and you look out the window and you just take a breath, like two or three seconds, and you see the green trees or blue sky or whatever, you're, you stop thinking words for a minute and your brain drops out of beta into alpha. And that happens 
constantly throughout the day. When we get into theta, it's part of our dream state. It's just falling asleep. It's just waking up. It is when we are lost in deep daydreaming thought. So some people, it's standing in the shower. They really like have spontaneous, creative revelations and ideas. For me, it's red lights. I always have my best like spontaneous growth concepts come at red lights. When you're driving home and suddenly you're at home and you don't remember getting off the highway, that's a theta level trance. So this is not when people say, oh, I don't think I can be hypnotized. It's sort of like saying, oh, I don't think I can relax. Everybody relaxes all the time. The question is, can you do it in a stranger's office? That's the only question. Can you do it when you're at home? Yes. Can you do it listening to an audio tape when you're at home? Maybe not if you're nervous about what's going to happen. So it's really about how comfortable you are with relaxing. And again, that's part of why the consult to feel safe, to explain. When people remember traumatic experiences, no one has ever been re-traumatized. And actually, uh, paradoxically, remembering traumatic experiences is often relieving of the symptoms of similar or related traumas in this life. Or even just the idea that our traumas have to be this, you know, primary scarring experience. I have a, a lot of trauma history. I mean, that's how we become therapists, right? <laughs> um, I have my own trauma history. And the regression work that I've done over the years has not, it doesn't remove anything that happened to me or how I processed it or, but it's given me a much broader perspective on the drama, the play of human trauma and what we're learning and how we can keep going. So have you ever had anybody just be incapable of being put under hypnosis? I've only had one person and it wasn't for regression. It was for smoking cessation. And he seemed very calm and relaxed. And I went through the whole thing. And at the end I said, so how do you feel? And he said, just like I did when we started. And I said, really? Tell me about that. Like, what do you mean? He said, well, my wife made this appointment for me and I told her it wasn't going to work. And it's <laughs> like, okay, well, I'm really sorry that that didn't help you. But that's the only, only person that was not able to get there. It, you know, people, there a lot of people struggle for, I would say the first five to seven minutes. And that's based on me asking them later, at what point did you really let go? At what point did your brain stop thinking about what I was saying and if the air conditioning was on or whatever? So I just have a lot of data that suggests that everybody gets there by after minute seven. And then when I get from minute seven to minute 25, you can imagine it's um, profound. But I also make a point to tell people like you will be in complete integrity in your body the whole time. If you need to scratch your nose or shift your weight, I've had people get up to go pee in the middle of this and they're fine. They maintain the state. 
because it's intentional. It's your intention. I don't make people hypnotized. I facilitate people relaxing into a different brainwave frequency where they can do this work. And if you get there through your own intention and you need to get up and go pee, then it will be within your intention to come back and be immediately rejoined to that state. They say all hypnosis is self-hypnosis and I 100% believe that. You just have to be comfortable letting yourself go there with my help. So fascinating. Yeah, it's awesome. I feel it's really perfect. lucky to do this work. I, I love <laughs> um, Is progression or knowing of future lives possible? Yes. Do you have experience with it? Yes. So Dr. Weiss, again, like totally normal Yale Medical School, New York kind of he he's he's great because when he talks about these things that are so out there he's just it's like you know i know it doesn't really seem to make sense but if you look at quantum physics time is not linear and everything that the physicists tell us is that we can't understand actually we can't comprehend in our brains how time works but his experience and now my experience has been people do remember what we consider future lives. He calls it progression. There's a book, Same Soul, Many Bodies, that's about progression. I'm sure there's a lot of other books too. And yes, I have remembered personally um, future lifetimes. Some of those in workshops with Dr. Weiss and some of those outside of that. Not that many people have spontaneous progressions in my office. In other words, they're not expecting a progression or they don't know of the concept of a progression and they remember something that upon discussion after the session does not appear to be something that's happened in the present or the human past that we know of. In fact, it sounds decidedly um, futuristic and not like movie futuristic, more like plain humdrum life like we know it, except with, you know, metal spheres that you can pilot and see through, <laughs> like all sorts of interesting, interesting things that you just can't, you just can't make this shit up, as I like to say, you know, it's fascinating. So yes, you can remember future things. Dr. Weiss, in a um, workshop I did probably 15 years ago out at the crossings when that was still there. Now it's a spa on Lake, Aus or Lake, Lake Travis. He asked everybody to do, we did a series of progressions. Again, there were about 100 people in the room. Now he has 500 people in the room, but back then it was much smaller. And he had everybody go to 150 years in the future and then 500 years in the future and then a thousand years in the future. And I personally had an, had an image, a set of images at 150 years. I had nothing at 500 years and I had something at a thousand years. 
and 150 years, I was a male college student in Boulder, Colorado, random, like studying something environmental and life was very similar to the way it is now. 500 years in the future, I got nothing. Thousand years in the future, I was a little old man with a hoe in my dirt garden outside of the house, like remote something and people would come see me and I didn't remember a whole lot, but at the end of that, he asked everybody a show of hands, who all remembered something at 150 years? And many of us raised our hands. Who all remembered something at 500 years? Uh, two people out of 100, three people raised their hands. How many people remembered something at 1,000 years? Half the room raised their hand. And he said, I've been doing this for a number of years all over the world, and something appears to happen to drastically reduce the planet's population 300 to 600 years from now. And, but then it, you know, it comes back slowly. But that, that has always stayed with me. It was so simple and real and, uh, you know, he wasn't promoting anything. He was just asking. And I saw the people raise their hands and not raise their hands. It was, and I know my own experience at the 500 year mark, I just got nothing. Um, and if, you know, if my brain is just projecting out of my subconscious and creatively imagining things, surely I would make something up for every period. And so would everybody else. Anyway, so that was fascinating. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Progression. Yeah. How long is a past life regression session? It's about two hours start to finish, but the first 25 minutes, okay, the first five or 10 minutes are getting comfortable talking, preparing. Then there's 25 minute induction. And then there's about an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 10 to an hour and 15 minutes of exploring a past life or past lives. Depending on where you are in a past life or when it's ending, I'll either ask if you want to explore more or we'll come out and we'll have time to talk at the end. Either way, there's, you know, 10, 15 minutes to talk at the end. Some people spend a lot of time on that in-between. And when they're there, they have access to their guides or guide. And sometimes those conversations are very clear and structured and they vocalize them to me even. Sometimes people go silent for a long time. Like, an, you know, it's a long time. I try not to let anybody stay silent for more than like two or three minutes, which if you're in silence, that's a long time. <laughs> like generally after one minute, I'll ask people, do you need any help? Where are you? What are you, what's happening? But when you're in the in-between and they say they're going to engage with their guide, I tend to really give a little more room, but that can actually be a primary aspect. I mean, there's a whole practice around life between lives, Dr. Thomas Newton's books, which I, I love his books too. Um, and I think that those books are fascinating and, and revealing, but I also think that there are some issues with, 
how he's how he put those books together or structure the books or anyway there certainly is a lot of richness to be experienced in between lifetimes are there any situations in which past life regression would be contraindicated well Technically, yes, it is a dissociative process. So <laughs> when you're in hypnosis training, they say, do not practice hypnosis with people who are already dissociated. Um, it's sort of a standard logical thing. However, <laughs> I have had some requests to practice regression with um, two different people with psychosis disorders by who were uh, not minors, but their parents came with them and said they really wanted them to um, attempt a regression. And, and in, in both of those cases, it was culturally more normalized to do, to explore the concept of re reincarnation and, and what past lives can, can, how they can affect you in this life. And so in both cases, I've sat with the client and the parent together and talked to them about the standard approaches, the idea of dissociation and what could happen if the dissociation felt more extreme for that person. And it's hard to ask someone who's experiencing psychosis if they consent. Um, and it's hard to just let an adult's parent tell you that they consent. So it, it was definitely in both cases, not just a no brainer, but ultimately they both seemed to wanna to do it in both cases and I did it. And let me tell you, one of them really could do it just like everybody else. And one of them couldn't but it didn't cause any additional distress. It was just, you know, she kept talking about her usual intrusions and wasn't able to relax enough, but the other one was, and, and that was interesting. She seemed to get a lot out of it. So it's not something I would ever like promote for that population, but on a case by case basis, um, I, I certainly haven't found it to be harmful. Is there any follow-up to regressions? Not required. I certainly invite people to come if they want to process any part of it, especially if they find any part of their regression unsettling, difficult to understand or to make meaning from, to interpret, to integrate into their lives. Some people are already in therapy. A lot of people are already in therapy with someone else. In fact, a lot of people's therapists recommend them to come do regression, which I've found fascinating and kind of grateful. Um, so some people I'm sure go to their own therapists and process it. And some people come, some people become regular clients. Some people come for one session to sort of process the things that they have questions about. I tell people it takes a few weeks for the what I call the dust to settle. It's just, that's a lot. It's a lot of information. And then there's a recording. And if you listen to the recording, uh, there may or may not be parts that you didn't even remember. 
most people remember most of it. But I know for me, I didn't want to do it again for years. It was just too intense. It was exhausting. It was emotionally exhausting. I've done it multiple times since then, but I've never done it more than once every couple of years. What is the client therapist dynamic like, like in past life regression? That's a good question. It's really different than in um, therapy. So in therapy, I'm providing input, right? I'm responding and reacting to the client when appropriate in ways that are intended to provoke or prompt a a further reaction or response from the client, right? There's a dynamic that's focused on growth and I'm really participating. In regression, I'm not. I'm a facilitator. I'm not giving my thoughts, my input, my take on things. I'm not interpreting things as we go. I am really just the Sherpa, (laughs) okay? And at the end, if they want to talk about, if we have time and, or they come back and want to talk about it and they ask me, what do you think about this or that? I'm happy to share my take on it, but it's not at all like the dynamic of, of standard, the standard therapeutic relationship in my practice anyway. Okay. I'm a pretty engaged therapist. And I'm not in regression. Yeah. What are some common misconceptions about past life regression? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It's so weird now that I'm so inside it. I can't remember whatever I thought that wasn't real, just that it was so weird. I don't think it's weird at all. In fact, it's so affirming of the human experience. Um, misconceptions. I don't know. Do you know of any? I can't think of anything. A lot of times people ask me if they're going to remember lifetimes as earthworms or horses or, and that has not been my experience. Um, Not personally, not in my training and not with all of my clients. Nobody has ever ever remembered a lifetime as an well people have remembered some lifetimes on some other planets but they were sort of human-like nobody's ever remembered a lifetime in my practice as a non-human-like or human entity people have remembered reincarnations of various pets very clearly like very confidently but not, um, not the other way around. Okay. Turning to you and your practice a little more, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC? So vulnerable, what was the word you used again? Vulnerable. Clients. Or populations. Oh, populations. That's what I was looking for. Vulnerable, vulnerable populations. So I have had people from all walks of life, including 
people who are transgender, people who are biracial or people of color or any, every kind of people, old people, young people, people who don't speak English. That's another thing we should talk about in a second. People <laughs> who, um, all people who have very different spiritual beliefs, Muslim people, people, all sorts of people. But the most vulnerable people to come and do this, it's a fairly empowered decision to come and do this in the first place. So let me just say that the vulnerable populations that I have worked with are inherently um, coming to this experience as an expression of agency and, and empowerment just to begin with just that they know about this and they're going to do this and they're going to do it. From my perspective, you know, we're all souls and we're all having these various different lives and different circumstances in life on purpose. And in my opinion of our own choosing. So I don't see someone from a vulnerable population as inherently different from me on a spiritual level, certainly our life experiences and the circumstances we are in or, and I believe chose, but you know, that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, but I can't say that I can relate to them in their life experience in this life, but they're here to do regression. They're here to in the premise that we have multiple lives and that we have lots of different kinds of lives. I believe that we've all led very vulnerable lives and we've all led lives of oppression and power and that it's an important experience to be on all sides of that. And so I guess I could just say there's nothing particularly uh, unique about someone coming from a vulnerable population to this practice, if anything, it can be further empowering. And I certainly don't see them as being vulnerable in my okay. office. <laughs> so what about people who don't speak English? <laughs> so, you know, if you think about the concept spiritually, there is no language. I mean, the language, lang human language is like the way we all look a little different or the different cultures and different ways of dressing. It's very superficial and that um, deep down, we've all lived in multiple cultures and multiple languages and all of these different ways and that there is a part of us that is um, at a higher level of abstraction from these differences that we think in, of in terms of language including language so when people remember a lifetime you know in the jungle in south america they're talking to me in english right but their experience there, I'll say sometimes, what do you, what is your name? I can't pronounce it. I don't know how to pronounce it now. Or so there's a lot of that, but then there's also people who come to me and barely speak English and say, is this going to be a problem? And my experience all along has been, nope, 
your soul is not an English speaker or a Farsi speaker or a French speaker or whatever. Our souls are multilingual <laughs> and easily translating. So when I was doing my training in Arizona at the Erickson Institute, one of the teachers was Brazilian. And, you know, that, that training in clinical hypnosis is about, when I was there, it was maybe 35, 36 people, half of which were not from the United States. So it was a large percentage were international from all over every continent, except maybe Antarctica. And um, they did a demonstration. She did a demonstration in Portuguese. She specifically selected a participant who was from Poland who spoke English, but he didn't speak any romance languages. And so she had him come up and volunteer. He was a psychologist, I think in Poland. And he sat in the front and we were all watching and she did the whole induction in Portuguese. And we all watched him go completely under. And it was the tone of her voice. And I mean, even when someone's eyes are closed, she's using her hands. It's this full body energy, which I try to practice myself. So this idea that hypnosis reaches a part of us that is beyond language, that is beyond whatever our various and multiple diversities are, that is beyond our beliefs and our intellectual training or whatever that is, that, that our spiritual selves are always operating at a higher level, that, you know, much higher than me, Barbara can process. Like I have to rely on my higher self to make sense of it because I, sometimes I witness things and I hear things and I'm just amazed, but some other part of me seems to be flowing with it. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks. How would you say your clients describe or experience you? <sighs> That's always hard, isn't it? If somebody asked mm -hmm. you that, would you have an easy time answering? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think they would say that I'm nice. That, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> that I'm spiritual. Uh, that I'm not pushy about beliefs. I don't have any agenda for anybody's beliefs at all. I don't know what people would say. I mean, I think they would say nice things, you know, okay. generally. <laughs> Are you the type of therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Absolutely. How do you hold space for someone during regression? That I do each time. It requires a lot of um, conscious attention. For me, people are wearing an eye mask. So I usually, I love to look in my client's eyes when I'm doing therapy. Some people don't really like that. And so I can't, but for a lot of people are comfortable with that. But in regression with the eye mask and, and the eye mask makes a big difference. It really helps to block the light and to, I look at their mouth and their nostrils. 
<laughs> like I'm usually sitting where I can see their mouth and then the nose, the part that's not covered by the mask. And I've been doing this so long now, I just tend to like look at that part of their face and then I zone out. And um, now I'm so zoned out. What did you ask me again? How you hold space for someone during yeah. regression. I hold space. So I'm looking at them and I get into this zoned out place. And then I'm really just trying to imagine what they're seeing. I'm listening to them talking. I'm trying to stay in it with them. Of course, I can't see what they're seeing. But in my own way, I am trying to, if they say, oh, I'm standing in a meadow, I picture a meadow. If they say I'm feeling apprehensive, I try to imagine feeling apprehensive. Like I try to track them throughout whatever they're saying. And sometimes they don't say things that I see on this. So I'll, I can see that they're emotional and they're not saying it. So whatever it is, um, that is part of how I do that in regression, which is different than, re than regular therapy. But I stay with them. In fact, it's why, frankly, it's why I charge more. I'm exhausted. I can't just do one and then do another one. Like it's really, mm -hmm. it takes much more intentional presence and energy from me than being in a therapy session, frankly. And I'm, and I'm a very intense present therapist, or at least I, I try to be. And the regression is a whole other level. That makes sense. What's the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Wow. You know, I told my supervisor when I was an intern after my master's degree that I sort of revealed to her that I was interested in past life regression. And she, she on the one hand, absolutely poo-pooed it and was a total secular atheist and, and comfortable and really easy going about it. And at the same time said, you need to do whatever you want to do. You know, it doesn't matter what I think or what anybody else thinks like you, you need to do just say what's true for you and see how it feels when you do that. And in some ways, maybe it has meant more to me over the years, knowing that she thought that was all bullshit. And she still said, you've got to go do and say whatever it is you, you're feeling. So that has stuck with me. Better than I if would, she had been like a true believer and like, yeah, yeah, go do this. It'll be <laughs> great, you know. Yeah, yeah. How would you define happiness? Scoff. Um, <laughs> such a loaded word. I know. I would define happiness as fleeting moments in a person's life that everybody has experienced and will experience more of and not a goal for all the damn time. Is that too negative? <laughs> no, I, I, 
I like, I live in a space of like grateful contentedness, but the idea of happiness, I think is so like, I love happy moments. I have happy moments. They're moments. Speaking of moments, what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician? <laughs> okay, this is really embarrassing, but honestly, it's been um, forgetting I had sessions and getting called. Like in my first two years working in a clinic, I still kind of cringe when I think back on it. I would get a call. Oh, Barbara, um, there's so-and-so's here and says she has a session with you right now. And I just had such a hard time adjusting to working on a fixed schedule because in my career before, you know, it was very hurry up and wait and do things when you could. And it took me a couple of years and I, I would, am ashamed to say I'm, it was at least three, four or five times that it happened. And I felt really embarrassed and really bad every time. And, you know, it didn't take more than five times, maybe four, before I just resolved. I had to get off my digital phone-based calendar, which, you know, people change, as you probably know, think people change things all the time. And I can't easily change things on my phone. So I went to a paper and pencil system. And now I have years of these books of paper and pencil, and I don't miss appointments. But yeah, that was probably my most embarrassing. I'm sure there are other things, but that's the one that came to mind. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you've been in therapy in the past. Are you in therapy currently? No, not right now. My therapist um, moved out of the 48 contiguous states. Oh, wow. Um, and... I've, I've had a couple of sessions when he's been back in town and if I need him, I can call and set one up on zoom. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, my husband died, he was sick for a long time. And so in the last few years, um, I didn't, you know, besides working and taking care of the rest of my family, I didn't like set any new goals for personal growth. It was all about like getting through one foot after the other. And, and I got through that and I did rely on his help. Um, some, and I stayed in a supervision group for a few years after I was fully licensed and even through my husband, the beginning of my husband's illness. And, and that was therapeutic too. Mm -hmm. Um, but I tend to do therapy in chunks. Like the first time was a few years and then I had a few years break and then I did another couple of years. I know there are people who go, you know, every Monday for 25 years, but that's not me. <laughs> well, is there anything else you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and or past life regression? Well, I don't know so much about me, but about regression, regression stretches our comfort zone about what is real. And 
what are we willing to that capital K knowing no without proof? And I believe now that the frame that we see the world through is all in our mind, right? We're all, as you said, meaning making, and we're all interpreting everything all the time. And once I figured out for me that I could see the world, including all the hard stuff through a frame that says the hard stuff is for suffering. It's for, I'm sorry, the hard, the suffering is for growth, not for the sake of suffering. If I can take that frame, it makes me feel better about the world. Like I can believe that there's a point to it all, that there is a goal. I don't pretend to know it, how, what it is exactly, but um, that I have no proof, okay? But this perspective helps me feel better about myself and my life and my clients and my kids and my family, et cetera. And I could just as easily pick another view of the world of which I would also have no proof that would make me feel really fucking distraught and cynical about what the world is. And that has no more proof or validity than this other perspective that I have, what's the right word, embodied, that helps me see the world as meaningful and purposeful and keep going. And it's hard on purpose. Like calculus is hard on purpose. But once you get calculus, you can do all this stuff. So if I have a choice in how to see the world and I don't have proof in any of the different possible choices, I might as well choose this one where there's meaning and there's purpose and there's growth for everybody, even the Donald Trump and the Adolf Hitler and the, I know I'm getting into like crazy territory, but like even the people we think of as the worst humans ever, the demons, it's this idea that we don't understand why people perpetrate, why people, why bad things happen. But in my chosen knowing view that there is a reason and I don't have to understand how it all works. And I know that we are all the same thing. We're all part of the same thing and we're all growing, going to the same, going through the same school, if you will. Um, it's made my life much more loving and bearable and I'm more grateful for it. Thanks for being on the show, Barbara. Yeah, thanks for having me. Deep thoughts. It's Deep Barbara thoughts and Noah. Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Noah. In preparation for this interview with Barbara, I did my own past life regression with her. Here's an excerpt of my induction. I'd like you now to picture in your mind's eye, using your imagination, a beautiful stairway with five steps leading down to the lower level garden, which is the sacred garden. Just picture the stairway and however your mind pictures it is just perfect. Don't walk down the steps yet. In a moment, 
I'll count you down from one to five. And with each step you take, your level of relaxation will double and double again and double again and double again and double again, compounding, leaving you profoundly relaxed as you enter the sacred garden below. Take the first step now, one foot and then the other. And as both feet come to rest, a wave of relaxation washes over you, leaving you twice as relaxed as only a moment ago. Take the second step now, one foot, then the other, and then that wave of relaxation washes over you and through you, leaving you twice as relaxed as only a moment ago. Already much, much more relaxed than just a moment ago. Take the third step now, one foot, then the other, then that wave of relaxation washes over you, through you, around you, doubling again this beautiful, magical relaxation. At this point, you may begin to feel so light that you could float, but it's important to keep your feet on the steps. It will be important in a little while too. So take the fourth step, one foot, then the other, then that wave of relaxation washes through every cell of your body, leaving you twice as relaxed again. Good. And now take the fifth step, one foot, then the other, then that wave of relaxation washes through every cell of your body and through the space surrounding your body every atom, every particle, and the space in between, and the relaxing energy, leaving you twice as relaxed again. And you can now step forward into the sacred garden, profoundly relaxed, walk forward into the garden, find a place to stand where you can look around. Notice what grows in this garden, the colors and textures. Notice the quality of the light 
in this sacred place. Notice how it feels to be this relaxed in your body. And how easy it is to realize your connection to every living thing in this place. To realize your connection even with the ground beneath your feet and with the sky above you. I'd like you now to picture in your mind's eye, using your imagination, a beautiful gateway somewhere in this garden. However your mind pictures the gateway is just perfect. Picture the gateway and walk over to it, but don't touch it yet. In a moment, I'm going to count backwards from five to one to help you through the gateway into the memory of another lifetime to help you in your current life. All you have to do is listen to my voice and follow along. That's all you have to do. Five. Once more, connect through your heart to your soul, through your soul to your guides, asking for guidance and support as you access your own soul's memories to help you in your current life. Take all the time you need to make your request or intention, and when you're ready to move forward, let me know with a small nod. Four, reach out and open the gateway. Just look through it, whether or not you see anything yet on the other side. Three, with one foot and then the other, step forward through the gateway. Feel your feet as you take each step, your foot landing on the other side and then your second foot. Very simple. Just stepping through and now standing on the other side of the gateway. Feel yourself standing on the ground having stepped over the threshold and now you're standing on the other side of the gateway. Good. I'd like you to look down Two, and tell me if you can see your feet and the ground you stand on. Good. And one, let yourself be there and look around. When you're ready, speak and tell me the first thing you become aware of, no matter how small. And here is an excerpt of one of my lifetimes. Tell me about your feet. Is there anything on your feet? Any kind of shoes? 
big clunky shoes. I see. What color are the big clunky shoes? Kind of brown, kind of black. Uh -huh. What else do you seem to be wearing? You can use your hands to touch your clothing or look. Black jacket. Mm-hmm. Big buttons. What are the buttons made of? Can you tell? Wood. Feel them under your fingers. Try not to overthink anything. Do you have any pockets in your jacket? Two in the front. Would you like to check inside your pockets and see if there's anything there? What did you find? Anything? Scissors. I see. What else do you see around you? Big pasture. And do you seem to be alone or not alone? I'm alone. Check inside and tell me how are you feeling emotionally? Any feelings you're aware of? Expect. Good. Open to that feeling. Lean into that sense of expectancy. Let it help you access your knowing about what you're doing here. What are you expectant about? Check inside your own knowing and tell me what you become aware of. Just let it come. They're coming. Who's coming? I'm not sure. And how do you feel about knowing that they're coming? Worried. I see. Would it be okay to go to where you live? It's a little far. Well then tell me what you're doing here. Are you on your way somewhere? No, I'm just waiting. What else do you notice? Anything at all? Horses. Good. Tell me more about the horses. I have a few. Are any of them saddled? Two. Do you know where you'll be going after this? They're coming for me. And why do they want you? What do you have? Or what can you do? Or what have you done? 
that makes them want to come for you. I did something they think is bad, but I don't think is bad. Are you waiting for them because you intend to go with them? Or are you going somewhere to get away from them? Check inside your own knowing. Just let it flow. I want to fight them. I see. What do they think you've done that's bad? Help somebody. And how did you help them? I took them in. Sounds very kind. And what had that person done? Just being a person. I see. Who are the people that are coming for you? What do they represent? All I see is red. I see. What else do you see? Swastikas. I have a wife and children. Can you see them? Are they with you? I made them hide. Would it be okay to go back in time a little so that you can see your wife and children? Just let yourself be there. Go back to an earlier time when you're with your wife and children. Just let yourself be there. And once you're there, tell me where you are and what's happening. She's cooking dinner. Kids are at the table. As you look at your wife, does she see you too? Mm-hmm. How does we're, it feel when you see her? We're very happy. Good. Open to that sense of happiness. Let it in so that you can always remember it. Do you recognize her soul from anyone in your current life? No. Okay. And how about your children? Tell me how many children you have. Two, one boy, one girl. And as you look at them, what do you become aware of, anything? 
Do you recognize either of their souls from anyone in your current life? My brother. around you. This is your home, I assume. It's small but quaint. What do you see? Wood floors. Mm-hmm. Pictures. Check inside and tell me if you are aware of any emotions, any feelings at this time. Gratitude. Let's go forward in time now to the next most significant event in that lifetime. Just let yourself be there. And once you're there, tell me where you are, what seems to be happening. Still waiting. Your family's in hiding. Yes. Why don't we go forward just enough to see what happens when they come? They hurt me. Do they take you with them? No. Do you survive? No. Okay. Are you still in the body? Yeah. Let yourself go through the moment of death. Just notice what it's like when your soul leaves the body. It's a slow death. Mm-hmm. What are you aware of as you lay there dying? Slowly. My stomach. What else do you notice? They're leaving. They didn't find them. my family and the people I took in. They're okay.
Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Amanda Hilberg to discuss her practice and one of her areas of specialty, exposure and response prevention for obsessive compulsive disorder. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.